Uh, welcome. Welcome again. This is our first week of our new series, Refined, uh, Pursuing Holiness. Um, in this six-part series, we're going to be looking at the gift uh, of God's refining work in our lives and the fact, if we're really, really honest, nobody likes the process, right? And if you don't understand what I just said, if that shocks you in any way, then I just get a sneaking suspicion that that word refine um, it does not mean what you think it means because refining, being refined is, is, is a terrifying process, right? It's being brought to that point, it's being brought to your breaking point where you say, stop, I can't go on any longer, it's got to stop. And that's not a comfortable place to be. I mean, we all recognize that and we all at the same time recognize the next day or the next week we're kind of happy, like after a really, really hard workout. It's not fun while you're doing it, right? You're just hoping and praying that somehow 12 minutes will go by and your cycling time will be done. No, I'm not at 12 minutes yet, so that was not a statement on my physicality. Um, but, you know, getting to the breaking point, it's really, really, really hard on you if you're getting tested in that kind of fashion, and then that, that's kind of God's goal, because as we talked about last night, we're not going to do it on our own, right? We will do whatever is natural, easy, and fun, but God knows that that, always, that won't always get us where he wants us to be and where we need to be, right, to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We need God's process. Um, and the goal of this sermon series is to remind us that his process, that refinement process, isn't always easy. It's not always fun. Definitely not fill in the blank. In fact, more often than not, it's difficult. And we want it to be super simple, but it's not. It's, it's incredibly complicated sometimes where the answers are just a whole lot of gray. There's no black and white, no easy right or wrong as God kind of throws these things in our path and, and, and encourages us to handle them correctly. And sometimes we don't and we just make a mess. And he says, that's fine. Let's, let's get back up and we'll, we'll give it another shot tomorrow because I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to give up. You want me to give up on you? You want to stop this process? But I'm not going to give up on you because I love you too much. I just love you too much. So this morning, given our current cultural state of affairs, media shouting from both sides, I want to look at a statement I hear a whole lot lately. Maybe you've been hearing it too. But that's not fair. But that's not fair. I mean, you can go anywhere in your world today and you can hear that spoken from a hundred different perspectives, but that's not fair. I hear it most often from my five and seven-year-old granddaughters. Georgie usually screams it when Simi gets anything that Georgie didn't get. Or Simi screams it when Georgie gets more of anything than Simi got. And here's the crazy part. Here's the you just kind of shake your head kind of thing. 10, 15 minutes later, they switch roles. They switch offenses. They switch accusations, right? Georgie's now guilty of what Simi had been guilty of, and Simi's now guilty of what she had been accusing Georgie of doing. And here's the kicker. They don't bat an eye. It's like 10, 15 minutes ago, never happened. They, they, they do not see the sheer hypocrisy of their actions 10 minutes later, 10 minutes ago, and they're just like, no, this is fair right here. It's like, no, no, you guys are crazy. And aren't we all just a little bit like my granddaughters? If we're really, really, really honest with ourselves, justice and mercy depends on your perspective. Right? Can, can we just say that? I think that's fair. We love justice for other people. We expect mercy for ourselves. Right? We, we, we do. 
right? We somehow, we rationalize, but for me, but for you, fry, right? We, we just got that, that, that attitude in our heads, and, and uh, we love justice when it's in our favor and mercy when it's not in our favor, and that's just the way we are, right? We love getting away with something, but we cry foul when somebody else gets away with something. We love getting something for nothing, but what do we do? We cry foul when what? Somebody else gets something for nothing. I was thinking about it. I was born a Caucasian, American, heterosexual, tall, handsome male. All for nothing. I'm just telling you. I didn't have to do a thing to get those things. I was just born with them. Didn't have to earn them. Nothing. Not a penny out of my pocket. Somebody had to pay for some of those. I understand that. But for me personally, not at all. But here's the, here's the crazy thing. In this time and place in world history, I got it going on. I've got every good demographic, if you look at people's perspectives and their opinions about different people, I kind of, in this place, in this time, I'm one of the lucky few, and I recognize that. Every demographic I mentioned gives me a leg up on anybody born in any of the other demographics. That's just kind of, it's not fair. When I first found out that it was simply because I was tall, I got more jobs than other short people get. I'm so sorry if you're short, but that's just the way a broken world works. If you're tall, you got it going on in our, in our place and time in history. But here's the crazy thing. If anyone from any of those demographics gets anything for nothing or more than I got, man, I get a little twitch. It's like, no, no. That's, I know I got it for free, but they can't have it for free too. And it just might, your brain starts short-circuiting just a little bit because we know in our hearts that we should be okay with that, but in our brains we just, oh, they're getting something I didn't get. That's not fair. We've got this innate but infinitely adaptable sense of what's fair and what's not fair. We're really good at manipulating the facts just to get them just right, right? And we all do this. We, we, as kids, we did it with our parents. And if we're honest, our parents did it to us. They just kind of played with the facts. It was all painfully obvious from our very earliest years, like my granddaughters. More to the point this morning. We chafe at following all the rules while others flout the rules and prosper, right? We respond, but God, that's not fair. Punish them. You ever had that thought go through your head? They need to be punished, God. Or at least, or at least give me a finder's fee, like pat me on the back, because like I sure told them where they're going when they die, right? God, me and you, right? We set them straight, which is a perfectly normal, reasonable response. God, that's not fair. It is perfectly normal. I need you to understand that, and it's reasonable. When we see things that are not fair, when somebody cuts in front of the line, some of us will go up and say something, and others who are more afraid will simply steam and be bitter and then make comments to the people really close to us that can't beat us up. That's it's kind of where we go when, when things are unfair in our world, right? I always thought if I was just a little bit bigger, boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, I would fix some unfair situations. But I'm very skinny, and I don't, I don't take that risk. So the question... Why doesn't God like that response in our lives? We complain, that's not fair, God. 
As I read scripture, I, I, I read that he's not that thrilled with that response. The question is why? And I think it's because if he were really fair, like Douglas was saying, we would be in a world of hurt, right? It's not in our best interest for God to go and punish them because as Douglas said, he would have to what? Punish us too. So we're like, okay, God, okay, that's cool. Leave him alone. <laughs> Leave him alone because I don't want to face the punishment either. So just be nice to them and then you'll be nice to me, right? We, we, we have these conversations with God. So again, how do we deal with the painfully obvious discrepancies? Between promises of blessings for the righteous and curses for the unrighteous, how do, we, how do we deal with that discrepancy between that and everyday lived reality where the righteous don't get rewarded and the unrighteous do get rewarded? Flaunting the rules seems to have enormous benefits in our world. And if we're really, really honest, sometimes following the rules doesn't get us ahead, doesn't get us to where we think we want to be. Scripture offers two solutions. I want to look at one of them this morning. I'll kind of refer to one partway through my message. Um, Two solutions, one's from Psalm 37 and one's from Psalm 73. We're going to look at Psalm 73 this morning. And it offers a perspective to somebody who has questioned, well, uh, that's not fair. God, what are you going to do about it? And so God's got two, two options at his disposal. Um, as we're going to learn, he, he follows up on both of them. But we're going to look at one this morning. It starts off 73, Psalm 73, verse 1 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And I just need you to understand that that word surely sets up the entire psalm. Right? This is a picture of somebody absolutely flabbergasted, right? They're flummoxed. Yeah, I looked up a few of these words. Things are not adding up for this guy, like somebody waking up from a bad dream in which everything they knew to be true had been proven false in their dream. And the psalmist is like, like he's waking up and he's giving himself a little, uh, a little pep talk, a little sanity check, right? And he's saying, surely God is good. Yes, God is good. God is good. Have you ever woken up from a dream like that? It's so real that you kind of have to talk yourself out of what you dreamed. Like, okay, my wife's still here, so the rapture didn't happen. Anybody ever have that one when you wake? Nobody? That's disappointing. Um, but the psalmist is literally waking up. Okay, God is good. Yes, God is good. God is good to Israel. Yes, God is good to Israel. God is good to the pure of heart. Yes, God is good to the pure of heart. And he's just kind of trying to center himself because he's, he's, he's experienced something that just, again, Blew his mind. He cannot make sense of what is going on around him. But here's, here's the, the worst thing is the dream wasn't a dream after all. What he thought he knew was being challenged all around him. There seemed to be a better option available than the one he had been following, a, 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 an alternative truth that maybe, maybe was more true than what he had been receiving from Torah. And he was overly intrigued. He was, he was enticed. He was tempted in a huge, huge, huge way. He nearly fell for it. Listen to this. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure of heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Essentially, he had watched an episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and decided, I want some of that. Like, I don't like what I have. I, I want that, right? And as I think about it, as I think about this, right, I am jealous and I'm envious. I'm, I'm angry and I'm bitter 
when I see the lifestyles of the rich and the famous and how ridiculously they spend their money and what they do. And again, here the psalmist saw what was so obviously enticing to somebody who had followed the rules all his life. I mean, just put yourself in that position. If you've been a good churchgoer your whole life, you followed all the rules, and you've watched people succeed, this should, this should connect with you, right? This is what he saw. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. These are the people that don't follow all the rules, right? They go get what they need and what they want. They take it. They're not plagued by human ills. Right? He's watching this from the sanctuary, looking out the doors going, which group do I want to be in? Right? They seem to be having a lot. They're on their way to the beach. Wait, wait a minute. I'm stuck here. In, in ch- you understand what the, he's going through, right? what he's feeling. Maybe you felt the same, same kind of thing. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. From their evil imaginations, they have no limits. So not only are they doing fabulously well by not following the rules, which irks the psalmist no end, they're also flaunting their success with excess success, right? No limits. They're just, and they're loving it. They're loving it. It gets worse. Hold on, it gets worse. They scoff, and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Understand that phrase right there. They're claiming God's position, right? They're saying that we will speak from heaven. Thank you, God. Sit down, right? We'll walk the earth. And and in Scripture, that means you're owning it. When you're told to walk somewhere, you own it. These people are mocking God, mocking God, Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They're like lap dogs, right? Anything these people, the rich say, we, we see that in today's culture, right? If an athlete, if he makes $40 million a year, we somehow decide, ooh, that man must be wise. No, not all the time. Money does not equal wisdom. But in our culture, we kind of went that way, didn't we? We worship money. And we give people with money the benefit of the doubt because we think, well, they clearly made it and look at my life, so I guess I'll listen to them. That's what's going on. That's what the psalmist is contemplating. Maybe I'm listening to the wrong God. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? So again, not only were they doing fabulously well and flaunting their fabulous wellness, they were adding insult to injury by rubbing the people's nose in it, both God and his rule followers. That's a, begging for trouble. Why follow the rules of a God who seems pretty ignorant as to what his people are suffering and who doesn't seem to keep his promises, right, to bless the righteous and curse the unrighteous? Why, why are you following that God? And this is what the people are asking the psalmist, what what are you doing? Our truth is so much better than your truth. Your truth doesn't give you much of anything, does it? Then the psalmist concludes his observations as judgments. Verse 12 to 15 says this, this is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. 
Surely, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. In other words, surely I haven't been following all these rules for nothing, have I? You ever had that thought? Somebody's been pulling my leg. <laughs> I've had that thought a lot growing up. Man, I sure hope somebody's not pulling my leg and all this is not true. Oh, man. Oh, in vain I would have done all this. In vain. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Right? If anyone were to look at the mess of my life, they would easily conclude that I'm a sinner too. Because following God does not take away problems. Right? He hasn't blessed me all over the place. It feels like he's cursed me by following his commandments. Again, if you believed as in that ancient world that a good life meant that you've been doing well and God was blessing you and a, a wrecked life means that you've been doing bad and God's not happy with you, the psalmist is saying, boy, if anybody looks at my life too closely, they're going to think I'm a sinner. And here I am bagging on other sinners. See what's going on? He's, he's recognizing something as he processes all these feelings, all this anger, all this bitterment. God's speaking to him still. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. In other words, if I had given in to living like the wicked, I would have been a disgrace to your children's children for generations. The children's children of the people that I'm a part of, these are my people. And if I, if I had given in, remember he says at the beginning, I almost slipped, but he didn't. But if I had given in, the future of this place probably would have been wrecked because I would have led a lot of people away from God. But then the psalmist walks into that place where generations of the faithful have been following the rules together joyfully for generation upon generation. And they would continue to do so. Listen to this. This is, this is the turning point of the psalm. When I tried to understand all this, I was deeply, deeply troubled till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then every, everything made sense suddenly. Right? Everything made sense. Then I understood their final destiny. Right? We're not told exactly what happened in the sanctuary that so changed his perspective. Was it simply a feeling of the presence of God? For some of us, that's all it takes. Right? We come into his sanctuary and, and we feel his presence and we walk out of here a changed person. Our behaviors are radically, noticeably changed. Something, something happened. Again, presence of God. It could have been presence of God. Maybe it was a teaching or the memory of a teaching. Maybe it was a song from his childhood that flooded his heart, or more than likely, but it could have been any of these things. In that previous verse, what was he thinking about? He's thinking about the kids and, and his spiritual family, his, his faith family. It was, it was, this wasn't just a matter of him and his decision. His decisions would affect his faith family, and he became acutely aware of that. Maybe, possibly, in the sanctuary of God, his thoughts went to the families of faith, jeopardized by him flirting with an alternative lifestyle. Was it simply seeing the faces of the people that he had grown up with, he had suffered beside, he had followed the rules with, he had seen the benefit of following those rules with, and he had walked right beside all of these people. Maybe it was just he saw the faces of people he loved. They've been co-laborers beside him who had counted on him in the past and will count on him in the future to be wise. 
not selfish and foolish and grasping after the first thing that crosses in front of them. They're, <clears throat> they're in the Lord's house. The psalmist realized he'd only been looking at the here and now. Right? He had failed to consider all the facts and went into public worship. He began to think of his, his destiny, his eternal destiny. Possibly in the sanctuary, he began to think of where he was going to end up in eternity and where they were going to end up in eternity. And all of this just kind of rushing, rushing. And again, we don't know exactly what happened, but we know the results of what happened. Here he continues, verse 18. Surely, he's, he's recognizing now the people that he had been envying and jealous of, he's recognizing finally the actual plight of their lives. It's not what it looks Right? What it looks like is a mirage, as we're going to find out. It's like a dream. It's not real. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You remember, he was once slipping too. His foot was slipping. But now they're on the slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you rise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. This is the message version. We wake up and we rub our eyes. Nothing. There's nothing to them. And there never was. Right? He's recognizing that the lives of the rich and famous, there's nothing really there. There's nothing really of substance there. It's all just temporary. It's all flashed, all bling. The psalmist finally, finally comes to recognize this. And again, just as sudden... To a certain extent, in the sanctuary, the psalmist realizes that in his jealousy and in his envy, he was no better than the evil people that he had been bagging on for the entire first half of the psalm. He says this, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and I was ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I mean, that's humbling yourself before God. I, God, I was an idiot Please, please, please recognize that I did not know what I was talking about. I only saw certain things, but you see everything. And Lord, I am so foolish and I am so sorry. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you'll take me into glory. Right? So he recognizes his faulty perspective. He recognizes that he was as sinful as anybody in his story. But he also realizes, and this is the kicker right here, God never left him. God never left him and would fulfill his promises. His whole life, right, before, during, and after the rant, right? His entire life, God had been there for him, would always be there for him, holding him and guiding him. So he concludes, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. I realize that now. Same realization that Lamentations, the writer, came to. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Two things become immediately clear to the psalmist, where in the past, before, it was all getting all fuzzy, all kind of getting crazy in his head. Number one, the first thing he's absolutely sure of, in the end, evil will be judged. 
And some, sometimes it will be judged sooner than after this life. And that is, in fact, remember I told you earlier there were two solutions that God offers, Psalm 73 and Psalm 37. Go read Psalm 37 this afternoon, and there's a different solution, right? In Psalm 37, the psalmist concludes as he looks at the lives of the rich and the wicked, and he looks at the lives of the good and the righteous, and he recognizes that built into this world, the fabric that God created, more often than not, not always, but the good do get rewarded, and evil does get punished. It's just, it's just the way the world works. Evil gets find out. But Again, if 37 doesn't play out, you turn to Psalm 73, and you can feel evil will not win. Evil will not have the last say. And I want to caution you for just a moment. This isn't to celebrate the destruction of sinful people, right? This isn't like the end of a Bond movie where everybody stands and cheers, like when a whole building falls on the bad guy, right? Oh, boy, you go out feeling just good about yourself. You need to stop and just hold on just a second, back up a step. We aren't to be celebrating the destruction of the wicked. I totally, completely believe that God is grieved when the wicked die without accepting his free gift of salvation. His will, we know, was that nobody should perish, but he gave us free will, and some of us can reject him, and many do. And I don't think it pleases God. I don't think at the end of the movie he's clapping, and I don't think we should either. And I don't think the psalmist is either. Probably the most important thing that the psalmist realizes is a second truth, that whatever God has in plan for the sinful, I know he's going to take care of it, but the bottom line for me is that at the end of the day, he's still my God. And at the end of tomorrow, he will still be my God. And my God loves me. My God is good. My God takes care of the pure in heart. That's who my God is. Again, it's not a celebration of the destruction of evil. That ought to bring tears to our eyes. And knowing this, clarity and respective return. It's the final verse, Psalm 73. But as for me, it's good to be near the Lord. It's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell all of your deeds. Here's what's walking. Here's what walking with perspective and clarity looks like. Um, Douglas stole this from me. This is again from the prophet Micah. This is Micah 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 8. It says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Essentially, for your part, and what you have control over, justice is your, that's the way you operate. When it comes to you personally, you operate just like Douglas said, you operate justly. But when it comes to your neighbor, something else goes to the forefront. Mercy. Right? You can't look at your neighbor and expect the same kind of justice that you're okay with in your life. If you truly love your neighbor, you're praying, oh, Lord, please give him mercy. Please give him mercy. Don't judge him. Because I know what judgment looks like for that kind of sin. Oh, please, please. I love my neighbor. Please extend mercy to my neighbor. And how do you find the right balance between being fair and, like Douglas put it, being unfair or being graceful, merciful? You walk humbly with God, right? You walk humbly with God. You recognize the fact that you have a two-by-four in your eye all the time. Just accept it. 
Quit worrying about the speck in somebody else's eye. That's not your call. So for the psalmist, pre-Jesus, hear me out here, pre-Jesus, in this lifetime, pain and suffering serves no purpose, and it will be destroyed. That's the perspective, pre-Jesus. But post-Jesus, we find out that pain and suffering, not all pain and suffering, but a lot of pain and suffering actually serves a purpose. Right? For the sake of Jesus and the sake of his mission, we're called to what? Suffer and sacrifice to carry our cross. Post-Jesus, right? We don't need life circumstances to tell us if we're loved or if we're not loved by God. Right? Don't look at the mess of my life and conclude anything. Please, please don't. There's only one place that we need to look to decide how does God feel about us, and I brought this up a bit earlier, we look at the cross. I don't care what the world is doing, when we look at the cross, we understand 100% exactly God's feelings towards us. No questions asked, there's no gray area, it's about as black and white as it's allowed to get. We just look at the cross, and we know. Paul writes this. We read this earlier in the service. You see it right, just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, before I go on, you recognize the unfairness of that situation, right? You recognize that, right? You should have gotten justice, but instead God gave us his son. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, God, Christ died for us. And truth be told, that's not fair. It's not fair that Jesus Christ had to pay for all of us. That's not, that's not fair. And it's okay to recognize that, and it's okay to say that. God, thank you for being unfair. Thank you so much for being unfair. Right? We serve a God who's fair and just when we need it. Right? He is radically not fair. The better word is merciful. Right? He gives us mercy. And this being the first of the month in the Eucharist, we do, we celebrate the fact that God was unfair when we most needed him to not be our judge, right? but to be a heavenly father a loving heavenly father, and that's exactly who he is to us. Would you bow your heads? Father, as we prepare to receive communion, we recognize that in your son, as reflective of you and your heart, they would take on the justice of the world. They would take on an ugly form of justice and prove that it was a, a dead end. Power and violence didn't win the day, Heavenly Father. Your, your love won the day. Violence lost. So, Father, retribution in any of the things that happen in our life needs to be the furthest things from our mind. Father, our prayer needs to be, would you please wait just a little bit longer until everybody has a chance to hear the good news that you have brought heaven to earth that you have invited everybody to be around the table. Nobody is excluded. Father, we thank you for your son. And we thank you that at just the right moment, 
you threw the book away and you just loved us because that's what we needed and that's what changed us power and violence doesn't change us love changes us sacrificial love more so so fathers we prepare our hearts to receive the communion elements representing your broken body and your spilt blood the retribution of the world against you and you didn't retaliate you selflessly gave yourself knowing that you would be raised back to death and that same power that raised you to death would raise us to death too Father, when we think about the unfairness of the world and, and, and just the evil and they seem to be winning, Father, we look at the cross. We look at these communion elements and we recognize we win. We win. Thank you, Father. In your son's name we pray.